hand. Uh, my name is Eric. So anyway, it's a joy to be with you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, first and foremost, just a neighbor of yours right down the street on South 31st Street. And uh, I also work at an organization, nonprofit here in the neighborhood called CLDI. So it's a real joy and honor to, to be with you all. So today, um, you can feel free to throw that first slide up. We're going to be talking about uh, looking back to look ahead and shalom and the unveiling of the kingdom. Yesterday, I had a conversation. Uh, we have, we're doing some concrete work at our house next door, um, a rental that we have. And so I was talking with the contractor, and I said, hey, what are you doing today? You should feel free to come. And he had some other plans, but he asked about what I was teaching. But I said, you know, the best part when you're the guest speaker is you can talk about whatever you want. And, and I was like, yes, that's so true. So uh, I've got some friends here. They hear me talk about this all the time. So this is nothing new under the sun. Um, but really do just want to, I'm, I'm excited about today, and this is something that I would say this topic that we'll be talking about today uh, has, has undoubtedly been very significant in my life, um, and I hope and pray it will be for you all as well. So before we begin, let's just open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come here together today, and God, just thank you so much for what an opportunity it is to meet and gather. God, it really is an honor. And so... Lord, thank you for every single person that's here. God, thank you for the sun that was shining so, so warmly this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you for this space of time. Uh, Father, I just ask that these words that I'm about to share, Father, I pray that they would connect, uh, your words would connect with people in the way that they need to hear from you. And so, Lord, I just give you this time. I give you my words. Lord, we give you our hearts and our lives. We love you, Jesus. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, as we enter into the new year, I, I love rhythms, I love, season, love seasons, and for me it really is, it's always a reset of how do I want this new year to look. And as I think about that, I think, I believe greatly that there's a great value can be found as we look back so that we might more clearly look ahead. And the, the author of Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun. And so I think as we think about that, it would be wise of us to consider what's been done and what can we learn as we look ahead. Undoubtedly, as we enter into this new world, into this new season, this question uh, of how can we look ahead is very relevant on the, on the heels of two incredibly difficult years as we've witnessed many travesties, aside from COVID. In America alone, we've experienced political strife, Insurrection, rioting, growing racial tension, sickness, the loss of loved ones, heightened housing costs, and what appears to be a loss of influence of the church and Christianity in America. As we look worldwide, this crisis and turmoil only seems to increase. The fall of Afghanistan, devastating natural disasters, the collapse of Central America, and stories of horrific migration attempts to cross the border, as well as millions, literally millions of refugees, men, women, and children worldwide who have fled their country for safety, food, and better opportunities. If we haven't already become numb to these realities, we, w we risk losing hope and assurance of a better reality to one day come. So as we step into 2022, I ask you, what is your outlook? Do you have growing hope? Or perhaps are you giving way to despair? I'm all enamored, as you can see in the title here, this idea of shalom with this concept of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that loosely translates peace or well-being, but truthfully, it means so much more than that. 
Perhaps a more precise definition is that shalom is the restoration of all things just as God intended. Uh, I've been thinking about shalom a little bit. I often think I've just been talking about this for a year, but the reality is my, one of my, my youngest daughters here, and her name is, is Ada Shalom, is her middle name. And so obviously well before her time, I've been thinking about this idea of shalom. We certainly see this picture of shalom, this completeness in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall of mankind and as followers of Jesus, we know that the shalom will one day be experienced with the fullness of God's kingdom to come. Thankfully, in the season between then and now, this shalom is actively present as God is unfolding his gospel narrative to restore mankind back into himself. Some time ago, I was discussing shalom with a wise mentor, and he gave me this definition that says this, Shalom does not mean an absence of conflict. What it means is a world that contains conflict, but in which God is present. So when we say we, we are promoting shalom, we are promoting God's presence in the midst of our shalom. Shalom is not an absence of conflict, but rather it is his presence in the midst of our conflict. It's in those moments when we're tempted to believe that we have been overcome with difficulty, with chaos, and the hardship that surrounds us that perhaps, rather than feeling abandoned and hopeless, we can find hope and assurance in not only his presence, but also in the steadfast shalom that he alone can give. As we will see demonstrating the following scriptures, this narrative of shalom has been unfolding since it first unraveled in Genesis 3 with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And the climax of this gospel narrative is a fulfillment of God in Genesis 3.15 when he promises to send one who will one day deliver mankind from their darkness. We know this promised one as the Messiah, Jesus, our Savior. On the heels of Christmas, I think a lot of times when we think about the birth of, the, uh, of our Savior, Christ Jesus. We think of Christmas trees and eggnog, uh, Christmas presents, and time of joy, time of glee. Uh, but I hope as we look back today and we think of the situation in which Jesus was really born, we will see that it was undoubtedly this picture of shaloms being birthed in a time of chaos. With the unfolding of God's promise, it was paramount that we understand that Jesus was born in a tumultuous time. As I was preparing for this, I, I found this amazing article. I'd, I've never heard of this pastor. His name's Pastor David Schrock. And in reflecting on the Christmas season, he writes this. He says, while we think of Christmas as a season of light, the truth is the birth story of Jesus is filled with incredible darkness. Anticipating the birth of Christ's child centuries before Mary was with, great with child, Isaiah writes that uh, light was coming into the world came to a people shrouded in darkness. Gloom, anguish, and contempt were just some of the adjectives used to describe this darkness. So more or less, that when we think of the birth of Christ, it was actually in a time of great, great darkness. Let's go to the next slide. On Isaiah 9, we're going to look at this passage. It says this. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. 
They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's law just, rod just as you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. His rule, he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. As we think about this fulfillment of Jesus, 700 years after this prophecy is given is when, when Christ Jesus is born. 700 years. And as the, uh, Isaiah says, it says, those who walk in darkness will see a great light. John in John 1.6 makes this clear. He says, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about this light so that everyone might come to believe because of his testimony, speaking of Jesus. John himself was not the light. He simply was a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So as we think about this prophecy, I always just think 700 years from the time that God had given this, this prophet this message of a hope of a time of deliverance to come, 700 years would pass before we would see it fulfilled in the birth of Jesus as we read on in Isaiah, it says that a child will be given on whom all authority will be entrusted. He will rule with fairness, justice, and peace. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Again, we don't have time to unpack this today, but as we begin to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we reflect on not only the birth of Christ, but the life and the death of Christ, we see this undoubtedly to be true. He was certainly all of these things. But not only that, I also want us to notice in this passage that it is the Lord who performs this great work. It is not us. It is not the prophets. It is the Lord. He will enlarge their nation. He will break the yoke of slavery. He will break the despair that is upon them. He will make all of this happen. Now let us turn to Matthew 2 to see the fulfillment of this. It says this. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In Judea, during the reign of King Herod, about the same time, wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he said, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, you can go to the next slide, please. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. Oh, I guess not. Sorry about that. Um, for a ruler will come to you who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time that the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And you will find him. Come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. I want to point out a few things. Again, as I was reading from this, this pastor, David Schrock, 
Uh, he had some just really insightful observations that I, I thought were enlightening as we think about Matthew 2. In the first one, he said this. He said, when, when Christ Jesus was born, the word of God had not been heard for four centuries. Um, from Malachi to Matthew, 400 years. We, have this, uh, we do these hand motions with my family for the story of the Bible. And, and so, you know, we have creation, the fall. I won't go through all of it with you. But one of those at this season is 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. Malachi had given this promise that a, a Messiah would come. But again, much like Isaiah, hundreds of years of silence. As I think about that, what must that, what must that have been look like? Waiting, anticipating the unfolding of God's plan of restoration. Second, I think it's important for us to remember and understand that God's people were under an incredibly oppressive rule from Rome. It was not an easy time to be a Jew when Jesus was born. As demonstrated by the life of Jesus, the Jews were expecting that he would be the Messiah that would come and he would overthrow the Roman Empire so that they would have rule again completely. Yet this was not the course that Jesus was on. And as we think back about the people of Israel, it, is, it was par for the course that historically they have been a people who have experienced so much oppression. We can think of uh, the time of Egypt. We can think of World War II. We can think of this season, that there was a time of great oppression happening to the people of, of, the, of, of, of God's people, of the Jewish people. And they were a longing, a time to be delivered. The third thing is that the nation of Israel was fracturing. Not only from what outside was there oppressive Roman influence, but now they were also fracturing from within. There was fighting for power within their own family. There was the legalistic Pharisees, and then there was the less strict Sadducees. We have these isolated Essenes, which were kind of monkish kind of people, and then we had the incredibly violent zealots that are saying, we will take this over with great power and by the sword. And undoubtedly, as we witness historically this fracturing that was happening within, it was almost as, as destructive as the oppression that was happening without. Fourth, the birth of Jesus came from a virgin. Mary's child would grow up ridiculed as the son of an unchaste woman. Just think about that for a moment. It's kind of already a taboo subject now, but certainly among the people of Israel, it was this season that was embarked by darkness. It was a thing of shame, not a thing of deliverance. Fifth, that the census that they were required to go to was a considerable imposition. Nazareth was more than 100 miles from Bethlehem. This forced pilgrimage that they had to go to register was an arduous and incredibly dangerous trip, especially for Mary, who was heavy with child. Again, it is this picture that darkness preceded the birth of Christ, the light of the world to come. Sixth, the poverty of Mary and Joseph did not fit the royal son we, that they had. We think about this often. Luke 2 says that she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. This author writes, without family or hospitality, darkness surrounded them. Again, when we think about the birth of Jesus, it was a season of oppression. It was a season of darkness. And lastly, seventh, that through the hostile forces of King Herod, Satan tried to kill, kill Jesus. 
Now, in the passage we read, it seemed like he was simply inquiring so he could go and worship this newborn king. But Matthew 2.16 says this, When Herod saw that the men, uh, that he had been tricked by the Magi, who did not go back to him, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So King Herod is so jealous that this, this potential king, this savior has come that he said, well, I'm going to just get rid of the problem. Anybody two years, two years or, or younger, I will just have them exterminated. And he does, and he did. But we also know that God spoke uh, to, to Jesus' parents, and they fled in the night to save Jesus. So it's important as we think about this, that's in this context, the season of darkness, the season of oppression, the season of absolute chaos, that a Savior is born. As we learn from Luke 2, it says that an angel said to them, the shepherds who were out in the field, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For to you in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So as we consider these passages, my question for us is what is it that we can learn from this as we begin to reorient our outlook to this new year? I want to provide you a few considerations. You can go to the next slide. The first one is that shalom, this idea of fullness, is the restoration of all things just as God intended for the flourishing of his creation. However, let us not be tempted to believe that shalom is an absence of conflict. Again, I'm going to say that again. Let us not be tempted to believe that in the midst of our conflict and our chaos and our difficulty that God has forsaken us, but to understand that it is in this place that God desires to give us fullness. Not only do we see this in the birth of our Savior, Christ Jesus, but we also see this throughout the Old Testament. For example, as we consider the people of Israel who had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, under an incredibly oppressive rule, that God in his time would raise up another Christ-like figure, Moses, to lead the people out of slavery and into freedom. And much like Jesus' birth, Moses was born also in a time of great conflict. Not only so, but his life was also marked by incredible difficulty and hardship. Yet in time, God did deliver his people, as uh, affirming in the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel that God had not forsaken them, but that he would fulfill his promise of restoration. Now, as we think about Moses and we fast forward another 800 years, once again, the people of Israel, they had been established in the promised land, but due to the rebellious hearts towards God, the Lord allowed the enemies of Israel to invade their land, to destroy their land, to destroy the temple, and to annihilate every sense of comfort and leisure that they once had. And that now it's in this place that while Judah, sorry, the hand motion is this, for the exile of Judah, that for, for this season when they've been exiled among their captors in Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah, again, a servant of the Lord, would write a letter to these slaves who are now in Babylon. And he tells them that you're not going to be coming home anytime soon. In fact, it'll be 70 years, but after 70 years, the Lord will restore you back to Jerusalem. It was in this period of time, time, marked by significant darkness and despair, that the Lord would remind Judah of his shalom, 
despite the despair and the suffering that surrounded them. In fact, it says this in Jeremiah 29. This is my paraphrase. Build homes and plan to stay for a little while. Plant gardens and eat what it produces. Marry and have children. And then find spouses for them. Multiply and be fruitful and stay for a while. Work for the shalom, the peace and the prosperity of the city of the enemies in which I have placed you. Then as you seek the shalom of your enemies, so will my shalom come upon you. Again, I, I love this, this picture of the unfolding of God's fullness in the midst of a season of great darkness. And not only that, but he's saying the ones who have destroyed everything that you ever knew. He says, I'm going to place you there in their city. And as you seek their welfare, so will my welfare, my shalom come upon you. Secondly, let us not lose hope, for this promise of shalom is God's promise. Again, there's, there's a few things. I have visual images in my, in my mind when I think about this as it relates to the, the story of the, their narrative of Scripture and what are the truths that we can hold on to. And uh, I'm not a mountain climber at all. Uh, but I always imagine like this 2,000-foot wall and there's nothing to grab onto, and so you're literally scaling this, and as you go, you're putting in those anchor points such that there's safety, and this is one of those promises that when God gives a promise, he will fulfill it. It's not a question of if this will happen, and so it's important for us to remember that God has not neglected mankind, but he has fulfilled his promise to bring life, through, uh, to bring life and fullness and restoration through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we think about this, we can look back on the past and read the prophet Isaiah from 700 years ago, and we can understand and know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, and then to know that shalom is ours now for those who respond in obedience to, to this invitation of Jesus to love and to follow him, that Jesus is at work to restore us in a relationship with him, that he is at work to restore us in our proper sense of who it is that God has made us to be, that you're a child of God, that you have intrinsic value and worth. And not only that, but that he gives us a framework in which we can now love and serve one another, including our enemies. And lastly, he has given us a purpose in this world to cultivate his goodness. This is God's promise, not ours. So let us hold in confidence that he will fulfill it. Third is that Jesus is the Messiah has come once, and so he will also come again to firmly establish his kingdom in the fullness of his shalom. Uh, as Jared is going to be learning in Samaria, I'm sure he already knows this, but they refer to this as the already not yet when we talk about the kingdom of God. That God's kingdom is here now in part already, but we know it's not yet fully established because there's absolute chaos all around us. As we look ahead to what God will fulfill, Revelations 21 says this. And I want you to just hear these words. I want you to picture what this might look like. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shot, a shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will, will be with them. And hear this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death or sorrow or crying. All of these things are gone forever. The fullness of God's kingdom will one day come. 
Fourth, as followers of Jesus, you now have the light of life so that you can give hope to the darkness surrounding us. Jesus said this in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in the darkness any longer because you will have the light of life that leads to life. As I think about this passage, it's this, this glorious picture that as Jesus entered to shine brightly in a season of great darkness, to, to draw people into himself, that that light of Christ now lives within us as Christ followers. That when we walk into this world, we are not walking in darkness. We may not know our next step. We may not know what's around us, but we know that he is lighting the path before us. And not only is he lighting that path before us, but we are a beacon of hope for this, those around us in this dark world. They may not know and understand what we know, but we know it is because of Christ. So we can go and we can live as light, the light of life in this world. And finally, Jared read my passage, which I love that you did this. Knowing that his story of restoration in our lives and those around us, we are to be his ambassadors. Second Corinthians 5 says that because we understand our fearful responsibility before the Lord, this, this great work that he has given us, we are to work hard to persuade others. As I think about us as Christ followers here in this world, I, I think the implications of this are several fold. One, first and foremost, it's, it's reading scripture that we are reminded that these things are true. We are reminded that, that God desires for the fullness of life for you and I. And we experience that. We can experience that now. And as we remind ourselves of that, sometimes it is in what seem to be the darkest hours. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's tr the struggle of trying to find housing. Maybe it's some other travesty that has gone on or that is happening or is happening in the world around us. But we know that God is at work. He has not left us, but he is present. And that God is present in the midst of this chaos. And as we think about that, not only do we need to remind ourselves, and may the Holy Spirit remind us of these things, but we can remind one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord that I am so sorry that this is going on, but let us remember this work that God is up to, that God has not forsaken you. God has not abandoned you. He is with you. He is with us now, and that we can be a people of absolute hope and assurance because of what Christ says he will do and what he has done. And lastly, that as we think about a world where there's so much hurting and so much pain, my call to us as Christ followers is let us not shrink back into this place of fear or despair, but let us step forward joyfully, gleefully, confident that the Lord Jesus will accomplish this great work. As I think about the, the fall, perhaps you could say, uh, the loss of influence of, of Christianity in the church in America today, I think of it as a great opportunity for us as Christ followers. Let us not fear, but rather, how can we all the more confidently go and love in such a way that only makes sense that it's the light of Christ, Jesus himself, working through us. So may we go, and as we enter into 2022, my hope and my prayer for us, myself included, is that we would maintain this posture of hope and then remind ourselves, when it seems hard, when it seems difficult, God has not forsaken us, but this shalom is more often than not birthed in the midst of chaos. Let me pray for us. Great God in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for who you are and 
this perfect shalom that God, you unfold in what seemed to be the darkest of times. 